Hello, and welcome to The Impact Code, your go-to podcast for stories of transformation, inspiration, and impact. I'm your host, Brett Hollenbeck, a seeker and storyteller dedicated to bringing you conversations that illuminate the path to personal growth and collective change. Each episode, we dive deep into the lives of innovators, thinkers, and doers who are breaking boundaries and making their difference in the world. Today's episode is brought to you by Tower Community Bank. As a dedicated partner in progress, Tower Community Bank is not just a financial institution. We are a cornerstone in fostering growth and development within our communities. With a commitment to personal service and supporting local initiatives, we help turn dreams into reality for individuals and businesses alike. If you enjoyed today's show, you can show support by heading over to www.towercommunitybank.com and checking us out. Big thanks to Tower Community Bank for their support in making this episode possible and for their ongoing commitment to community and empowerment. So sit back, tune in, and get ready to be inspired by today's conversation with Benjamin Harold. Welcome to the Impact Code, where we dive into the stories of extraordinary individuals transforming lives. Today, we're honored to introduce Ben Harold, an astute author and reporter here to discuss his new book, Disillusioned, Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. His work insightfully critiques the American suburban dream, revealing the racial injustices and unsustainable promises hidden beneath. With a master's degree in urban education and a career in award-winning journalism, Ben brings a unique lens to the complexities of American suburbia. Get ready for a compelling discussion on the hidden narratives of our communities. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. So on the Impact Code, we like to explore impactful journeys. And I think a great place for us to start our discussion today would be with you describing the moment that you realized your writing could significantly influence this narrative around American suburbia. Yeah, one of the first moments that really stood out when I just had begun reporting this uh, project and I was talking with parents in different communities around the country, different suburban communities. And I was in suburban Atlanta and talking with, it was almost kind of like a focus group with parents of color in the Gwinnett County Public Schools there. And that's a really highly regarded school system. It's won all kinds of awards. But the stories that I was hearing were very different than that. It was things about bullying about harassment of uh, your, the, the mother's children, about um, things like unfair discipline, about suspensions that weren't warranted. And it really stuck with me because it was so counter to this kind of narrative we have about suburbia is the place where you go and everything just works. And you, know, the, you get put on the path to middle class and American dream and it's simple and easy. And so I started you know, talking to more parents and really thinking about that in the moment when you know, this is my first book. And so um, I still kind of wasn't quite sure how to how big to think about it. But when I started sharing some of those stories um, with the agent that I was trying to work with, it resonated with her immediately. And she immediately was the one who said, hey, this is a story that I think people all over the country are experiencing, but we're not talking about. Let's try and go really big with this. And for me, that was it just opened a window to really try and do work at a scale that I hadn't done before. Wow. That's, that's absolutely incredible. So as you're discussing these ideas, was there one idea specifically that, that stuck out or one issue that stuck out or is the, is the myriad of them a little more complex and, and uh, sort of entangled? A little bit of both. So, you know, I think the, you know, one of the first things that really surprised me when I started looking was just how 
dramatically the demographics of suburbia are changing. So even if you go back to as recently as 1990, America's suburbs were 79% white. Now that number is barely over 50%. Inside suburban public schools, white kids are already a minority. So I think, you know, we, we have this kind of leftover image of leave it to beaver and wonder years and desperate housewives of suburbs being predominantly white middle class spaces. But that's actually just not the reality anymore. And so both hearing the stories and seeing the numbers and really paying focused attention drove that home. Um, and then with that, you know, with those demographic changes, I think we're starting to see and hear and experience a lot more of the kind of stories that I was hearing from that mom outside Atlanta of just, hey, this space worked really well for the predominantly white generations that came before me and the institutions worked really well for them, but I'm having a very different experience. And why is that? And so certainly there's kind of racial elements to, to that. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of um, biases and prejudices and values and priorities that are baked into systems that were built for predominantly white communities at first. Um, and there's also an economic component to it as well. So, you know, I think what we see in a lot of suburbs and something I get into a lot in the book, including in my hometown and right outside of Pittsburgh, is this kind of wave of post-war suburbs that was built in the 40s, 50s, 60s, very quickly, almost overnight, with huge subsidies for families to move out there in terms of their, you know, guaranteed mortgage loans and tax breaks and new infrastructure, 30, 40 years down the line, all of that stuff starts needing repair all at once. And the money's not there because the, you know, the priority in the suburbs was abundant services, low taxes. And so all of a sudden you have this place where a community that was one thing starts to change into another thing. And instead of families, you know, by and large staying and kind of facing facts and trying to do the hard work of repair, we've had this habit in America of saying, well, anyone who can will just move further out. And so that dynamic combined with the racial elements of suburbia, I think has created a really, really vicious cycle that um, we're only just beginning to experience now. Wow. We're going to dive into, I think, both of those issues a lot more as the as the podcast gets a, a little bit further. I do want to pause and, and just let everybody know, Ben's book, uh, Disillusioned, is available now at the time this podcast released. So if you're listening in, uh, I would I read the book in preparation for this episode. Highly recommend it. I think it's a, it's a must-read piece. And it does capture exactly like Ben said, something that we're feeling, but has been hard to articulate. And and that's exactly what I felt when I read the book was like, I have sensed this. I haven't known how to put words to what I've been seeing. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. It's very prevalent. And I think a lot of, you know, both, um, uh, parents and educators and policymakers, but also those of us who kind of write about communities and you talk about communities like you do, like there's this, we recognize that there's almost like this ambient anxiety that kind of filters through a community of like, Hey, this isn't quite what I expected. Hey, these troubling things kind of keep happening. Hey, why aren't these roads getting fixed? You know, it can be like little things that pop up in the day, but they start to accumulate. And then all of a sudden they kind of hit this tipping point where it's like, oh, wait, this community is actually transitioning into something very different than I thought it was. And the impulse that we've had historically is to try and escape that. And right now, I think part of what we're seeing is like the av- our traditional avenues of escape are actually being closed off. And so we're having to confront that reality, that feeling, that ambient anxiety that we've been you know, kind of noticing here and there for a little while. Yeah. Ben, was there something, uh, did you have a personal experience that led you to writing about this specific 
thing. Would you be willing to share that as well? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in um in the suburbs. I grew up in an inner ring suburb of Pittsburgh. It's called Penn Hills. It's about 10 miles east of downtown. My parents moved in there a couple months before I was born and I you know, lived in the same house and went to the public schools, um, kindergarten through 12th grade. And, um, you know, by and large, we had a great experience. Suburbia worked for my family really, really well. So um, particularly in the schools. And so uh, when I graduated, I couldn't wait to leave. I thought the real world was happening somewhere else. And so I wanted to you know, get out of the suburbs, be in a city, travel, do all the things that you, know, you want to do when you're 18, 19, 20. And so eventually I became a journalist and I, like, I kind of held on to that, the sense that, hey, the real world is happening somewhere else, not in places like where I grew up. And I kind of, you know, really a lot of my work reflected that right up until about 2015, 16. And then all of these headlines started coming out of Penn Hills, the town where I grew up. And it was somehow this tiny, you know, four or 5,000 student district had run up $172 million debt. And they were starting wow. to furlough teachers. They were starting to slash services. Property taxes were going up. Uh, home values were stagnating and in some cases going down. And it was like, hold up. This is the stuff I'm used to hearing about in, you know, urban, urban areas, depressed urban areas and in kind of rural areas that we forgot about. But this is happening in the suburbs. And so it was really that personal connection to my hometown that led into it. So I went back to Penn Hills. Um, and I actually went back to the house where I'd grown up, which my dad had sold. And so mm. we had, uh, you know, left really kind of quite a mess on the property in the backyard. Uh, it was a lot of junk. And it was just so upsetting to see that that was still there five years after we had left. And all of the people who lived on that street and all of the people in that community now were effectively the ones having to deal with it and pay with it because we and pay for it because we had moved on. And so that kind of nutshell of like, hey, what's the mess we leave behind? How does that affect the generations that follow us? And what's our accountability to that? It really started with me kind of coming to terms with my hometown and then realizing like, hey, this is not unique to Penn Hills. This is happening all over the country. Mm. As you were experiencing this, and I think the like the meta the metaphor or the image of of your own backyard mm-hmm. and your own kind of personal responsibility, what, what are you thinking as you're kind of experiencing that and feeling that and and being back there? I think first is just um, having like it takes some work to actually process that. And so, you know, I write a little bit in the book about my own experience of, you know, kind of repeatedly running away from that in my own life. Like I said, I couldn't wait to get out of uh, Penn Hills when I was uh, when I graduated in 1994. And I really didn't come back all that much. And when I did, um, you know, the last few times it was when my dad was getting ready to sell the house. And so I was helping him kind of clean up the mess. But we never really kind of got through it fully. And when, you know, I think both of us would kind of get overwhelmed and just try and ignore it. And that kind of pattern, you know, start to realize, oh, wait, there's like a, an emotional process to that of not allowing yourself to feel the reality of what's happening. So the first step for me was really engaging with it at that level and to say, okay, wait, there's, a, there's like you said, this is kind of a, a metaphor or a microcosm of this larger dynamic. And if I want to understand the bigger thing, I have to reckon with the small specific thing for my own family. And so that, you know, that's a process. And I think it's a process we have to learn. And for me, that became much more complicated um, and fraught, but also much richer when I got to know Bethany Smith, who's an African-American mom who bought the house three doors down from my child at home in 2018. Again, thinking she was kind of getting in, buying into the suburban dream and then realizing there's all of this stuff that she is essentially on the hook to pay for. And it's the stuff that benefited my family, not hers. So, we, you know, it was a very, um, you know, ongoing and fraught process to work through that and try for both of us to try and reckon with that. I think a, a great connecting point here is is talking about the title of the book. So, yeah. so can you talk about how that led into this title of, of disillusioned? 
Yeah, I think it, for me, it, it kind of operates on two levels. So one is the immediate experience of families in suburbia, and particularly families of color right now, of saying, hey, again, we thought we were um, getting this generous social contract that has defined suburbia for, uh, for generations. And in fact, what we're getting is the debts and disrepair and disinvestment that we are now on the hook on. So that, that results in a lot of disillusionment. And I think that can show up when your you know, property tax bill goes way up and it can show up when your kids call it a racial slur on the playground and it starts to build and solidify as all of those things accumulate. So that's the first and most important disillusionment. But I think for, you know, for me, there was a second process to that as well. And again, it comes back to confronting my own experience and my ways of handling with my experience of like going through all of this, realized I had a lot of my own illusions about not just suburbia, but about my family and myself, about what we deserved, what we earned versus what was kind of handed to us and to me, um, about, um, whose voices matter in suburbia, you know, all of these kind of illusions that I was carrying with me. Part of the process of writing the book was trying to shed those so I could, you know, see and engage with what was actually happening. Mm. I really like that answer. And I think it's a great place to sort of pause with a, with a brief caveat and, and discuss this idea of the illusions that we carry yeah. because in facing those things, it's very easy to get into a defensive position and well, no, that's not me or no, I didn't have to do anything to do. I didn't make that choice. It may have been my parents or there's all these excuses that I think, I don't know if it's the ego or or whatever it is, our our kind of self-preservation starts kicking in. Mm -hmm. How did you come to terms with those things in the midst of that natural tendency to sort of be defensive? I'll give you two stories that kind of, you know, ran as counterpoints to each other that kind of forced me. Um, it was an example of kind of how I, you know, th- this process of writing the book forced me to, to deal with exactly what you're describing. So one of the, the family that I ended up writing about and following in Gwinnett County, it's African-American family, you know, uh, upwardly mobile, upper middle class, advanced degrees, professional jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And so their experience of suburbia was, you know, it was okay until their oldest son, African-American son, hit middle school. And then all of this stuff started happening. So detentions for going to the bathroom, write-ups for disrespect, all of these kind of like subjective things that the school was both kind of not only punishing, but overreacting to and kind of creating this toxic dynamic. with. And the family, you know, the family, the Robinsons in Gwinnett County really, really struggled with that. Like it was, that was the source of a lot of their disillusionment. And so having that story and getting to know the family and really understanding just how deep the, the pain and disappointment of that went, for me, was a just a powerful counterbalance to realizing one of my own experiences growing up in Penn Hills. When I was right around that same age, fifth, sixth grade, you know, I liked writing from a very young age. And so I had got invited to go to what they called Author's Day in Penn Hills. It was a place for promising young writers to come and like do writing exercises and learn. And so, you know, I was kind of a goofy, socially awkward kid. So we're outside um, for the lunch break and it was kids from all different schools. So I didn't really know anyone. I'm sitting there by myself in the playground and I just kind of, you know, get lost in my own little fantasies. And then I realize everyone else has gone inside, but I'm still sitting up. So I get up to go in and I see a purse lying on the ground. And I still can't tell you exactly why that I, I did it other than that I was a kid and kids do dumb things, but I took the money from the purse and put it in my pocket and went inside. Mm. And so what happened was someone saw me and the adults pulled me out. But instead of this kind of, you know, here's a, an actual real um, infraction, a right, actual real problem mm-hmm. of stealing, not just taking too long in the bathroom. But instead of punishing me and kind of creating this kind of toxic relationship with the adults in the Penn Hill school system told me was, you have a bright future. 
don't screw it up. We're going to let your parents handle discipline. You come back into Author's Day. And so mm-hmm. there's just, if, if we're willing to hold the story side by side, it's impossible not to have some reckoning with the, what, you know, those disparities and with the illusions behind our own experiences. Yeah. Wow. So how did you select the specific families? You, you talked about one, but what was it that led to the specific families that you have featured in the book? There's five families that you are prominently featuring in the, in the book. And, and what led to those specific families? Started with the communities, actually, because I, you know, okay. um, my background is in journalism and research. And I, I like that part of this uh, work a lot as well. And so I started reading a lot of about the suburbs, uh, sociology and so forth, and came to learn that there's this kind of some established typologies. So there's different types of suburbs. Like we kind of say suburbs and think it means, you know, a big single family home surrounded by a lawn with a fence and, you know, you drive everywhere and, you, you know, the, the shopping is somewhere else. Um, but we have inner ring suburbs. Um, we have these old kind of 19th century suburbs. Um, we have suburbs that have since transitioned and we don't even think of them as suburbs anymore. And so I really wanted to have a representative sample of communities that show the full spectrum of that cycle we were talking about earlier. A brand new place like the exurbs going up north of Dallas, where you still see these massive homes being built. And they're still using many of the strategies and you know, based around many of the values of you know, kind of our original post-war suburbs. Um, all the way down to the other end in Compton, California, which we don't think of as a suburb anymore, um, but was actually kind of a prototypical bedroom suburban community that was all white right up until about 1950. And so the, fa- the communities kind of describe this cycle and arc that we've been talking about. And then within that, it was really, again, this process of talking with families, talking with advocates, talking with educators, explaining kind of what I was thinking about. And then almost invariably, they'd say, oh, I know lots of people who are going through some version of that. You should talk to X. And that's how I got to know. Some, it was In one case, it was through a local realtor. In one case, it was through elementary school teachers. Another through an um, advocacy group. Um, Bethany, I just knocked on her door <laughs> on my old street. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's how I kind of got to know folks. But the idea was to make, you know, it's about both people and families and communities. Mm. I think that's really interesting too, uh, starting with the community and then sort of drilling down so that you, you hit all the, the, the prototypes, I guess, or the models of communities. I hadn't really specifically thought of modeling communities in that mm-hmm. is suburban communities specifically in the, into those different subcategories, but there are, there's, there's several different types and we generally do have one right. probably based on our own experiences, one picture of what we see when we think of suburbia. Right. And I think that, you know, that's part of, um, what I hope the book will communicate is that there's actually a wealth of academic research on this topic. So like for folks like you and I, you know, we kind of have been carrying around our illusions and ambient kind of sense of something's going on in suburbia without really digging in, but there's people who have made it their life's work to really understand that. And I'm very grateful to them. And I'd like to think the book is kind of building on, you know, a lot of their work and notions to say, Hey, here's the different types of suburbs. Here's the kind of cycle and pattern we start to see there. And really there's just a a, a really tremendous emerging body of research about suburban schools in particular, and particularly the experience of families of color in suburban public schools. And so there were a handful of researchers, um, who have you know written about that and done work on that that I relied on very heavily and very grateful to because they kind of provided the, almost the intellectual foundation for me to make sense of the stories when I started to hear them. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Do you, do you think, based on what you've seen and and the researchers that you've talked to and in, in your own experience, that has this been going on for 
some time and we're just now sort of seeing the results of this or is it something that has started more recently? I think what, uh, again, it's kind of a little bit of both and Compton becomes a great example here. So because Compton has gone through this whole cycle already and is actually now coming out the other side of it. Um, But it's a cycle that can take a couple of generations. It might take 40, 50 years, 60 years to really play out. And so that's part of why it's so hard for us to pinpoint, hey, this is what's happening because we feel it. But it's not something where you can take a snapshot and see the whole thing at once. And so um, the five communities I featured in the book are each at a different stage of this process, with Compton being the place where you can see the whole thing having played out 50 years ago. So again, it was built, um, you know, built up and started to really suburbanize in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And it was really, Compton was really a pioneer in a lot of the technology of racial exclusion, like um, racially restrictive uh, deed covenants and houses. And so it was illegal to sell homes to black families for years in Compton. And it was an all white suburb as a result. And people fought very strong to protect that. But with Brown versus Board of Education and the, you know, the, um, the, the racial covenants being declared unconstitutional or unenforceable, uh, you know, as the civil rights movement gathered steam, what we saw in Compton, as we've seen a lot of other places, is okay, the demographics start to change. Other people come in wanting that same opportunity as well. And so Compton kind of went through all of these cycles. It had a period um, where it was getting a lot of national attention as the largest black-run community west of the Mississippi. Um, and what you saw was, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, really strong efforts and policy fights to try and hold on to that suburban character, even as the demographics and economics changed. Um, but because the disinvestment was so profound, because the debt load that had been passed from generation to generation grew so large, and because of problems with corruption and denial and political infighting and all the stuff that happens, you know, in our communities and in politics, the bottom really kind of fell out in the starting in the 70s and 80s. Um, and so the fear that I think I come away from this process with is, hey, if this cycle, if we're seeing all of these communities like Penn Hills and Gwinnett County outside of Atlanta starting to go through the early stages of this cycle now, and now it's not just one or two, now it's thousands of communities that were all built so quickly in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Are we all heading down that same path of what happened in Compton? Um, and the hope would be that we can avoid that. But the reality is that that foundation of racial exclusion and kind of pushing the true cost of development off onto future generations, those things are endemic in a lot of our suburban communities. And I think it's, you know, we have a lot of reason to be really worried about what's going to happen to them. Yeah, it is. It's frightening. At best, it's frightening. Do you think with there's been this acceleration, I feel like, of of change where it feels like things are changing much more quickly and much more frequently as time progresses just due to technology and sort of the arc of change with technology. Do you see that same type of arc where the, where these cycles may be speeding up in suburban communities where these cycles may be happening faster uh, due to kind of everything else happening faster? Um, The question makes me think immediately of uh, Lucas, Texas, which is the ex-urban community north of Dallas that I also focused on with a a white family uh, named the Beckers. And so, yes, would be the short answer. I mean, what I saw there was a community that was really primarily um, ranch land and pasture with scattered housing up until the early 1990s. Um, and then the growth north of Dallas, you know, it just kind of started to spread north of Dallas and Lucas started to develop too. Um, and so, you know, when the family that I followed moved in there in 2019, you know, 
in some ways, it still felt like a new community. Like you would drive around and see, you know, houses being constructed and things being built. But this cycle has grown so compressed that within the span of two years, exacerbated by COVID and the protests after George Floyd's murder and so forth, all of these things, I think, did accelerate and became much more compressed and intense. So you had this community that was really only 20, 25 years old and very wealthy for much of its lifespan, all of a sudden being in this place of like, we have to close one of our three elementary schools. We have multi-million dollar operating deficits in our school system. We have a $40 million debt load in this tiny town of a few thousand people. And so, uh, yeah, I think the concern would be absolutely that, you know, if this is accelerating, um, you know, how do we stop perpetuating that same cycle and disrupt what's already happening and try and find new models? Yeah. And I do want to cover some of that uh, before we finish up our, our time today. Ben, what was, as you were writing this book and as you were doing all of the research leading up to this, I know your background is investigative journalism. So I'm imagining that a lot of what you did was that investigative journalism leading up to the process of writing the book. What was your most surprising finding? The first thing that really jumped out at me was, again, the scale of those demographic changes. Um, And, you know, I think even just on a very personal level, like, when I went to Penn Hill, when I graduated from Penn Hills High School in 1994, the school system there was about 72% white. And then when I came back and started seeing all of this news in the you know late 20 teens about the you know, dead and teachers being fired and programs being slashed, et cetera, it was like, oh, wait, this other thing is happening at the same time. Penn Hill schools are now two-thirds black. And that happened very quickly. And it's happening all over the country. And what we're seeing a lot is you know, dramatic declines of white population, largely as a result of birth rates and aging and so forth. Um, and dramatic at the same time that you have a dramatic expansion, uh, this kind of explosion of youthful diversity, particularly Hispanic and Asian in a lot of communities. And so the demographics would be one. And then the second was um, really digging into the history of each of these communities. And again, we don't really think of the suburbs as having a history. They're just these places that popped up. And if we want to study history, we go to a city or to Europe or, you know, an old place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But these places, communities are in many cases, 100 years, 150 years old, and, and they have these really rich histories. And so part of what I was, um, was eye-opening for me was to see just how profound how profoundly the impulse for racial exclusion and the impulse to not pay for what we're getting right now structured the whole kind of design and development of a lot of these communities. It's embedded in the institution. It's embedded in the local markets. Um, it's embedded in real estate. It's embedded in schools. And so that's part of why it becomes so overwhelming and kind of feels intractable is because those values were kind of written into the foundations of the places. Do you feel like those values were were well intentioned? Kind of based on the the research that you have, were they were they well intentioned policies that went bad, or how? Like, what was what do they feel like to you after doing so much investigative journalism around the policies themselves and how the communities were established? I think a lot of the policies around racial exclusion were certainly not well intentioned. They were intentionally okay. and explicitly racist. And you know, if yeah. you're writing into the deed of a home that it's illegal to sell to a non-white family um, unless they happen to be servants, like that is a fundamental problem. And I think we, again, when we look back at the roots of suburbia, we underplay not only how 
significant that is, that was, but how widespread it was. Um, and, you know, those kind of technologies of exclusion, deeds and covenants are one, but, you know, drawing boundaries um, in certain ways, gerrymandering school catchment zones. Um, there's been a wealth of research on the, the kind of racist practices in real estate markets. So a lot of it, kind of at a structural level, I think was intentionally and explicitly racist. Um, that said, we're also human beings kind of living our lives in that. And I think you know, looking at my own experience growing up in Penn Hills, like that, those dynamics more or less describe kind of the history and development of Penn Hills. And I grew up in it not thinking like, hey, I want to keep anyone out of my community. It was just happening naturally for me. And I let it happen and I chose not to notice it. And so I think that creates a different dynamic for us where, you know, again, you talked to, uh, at the beginning of our conversation here about, you know, sometimes we get really defensive talking about these things or our kind of defense mechanisms kick up. And I think that's natural and it's, it's natural to happen, but it's part of the way I've come to think about it is like, we are all living in relationship with these kind of systems. And so we're responsible for our choices and how we live in relationship with it. But Choosing to live in a place where your kid can get a good education, that's not fundamentally bad or wrong. But if we're not recognizing and aware of and cognizant of the kind of ripple effects that can happen when thousands or millions of people are making that same decision and keeping other people from making the decision as well, then we're not really fully owning our own experiences. Beautifully said. So... Then let's talk about your hope for the book. So as you wrote this book, what is it that you hope the book accomplishes within the reader regarding the American suburban dream? Yeah, first off, I, I'm hoping that it will help people look at suburbia in a more rigorous and honest way. Um, you know, to take this kind of like um, connect all of the dots that we hear um, from individual stories or isolated headlines or just kind of that feeling that we have when we drive around and we know something is wrong and to say, oh, wait, that's actually, that stuff matters. And it, here's why it matters. And here's the larger framework it fits in to help us understand suburbia in a different way. And then I think beyond that, you know, I think particularly for suburban families of color, you know, over and over and over again, I would talk to moms and dads who would say, you know, it just like it was hard to fight because it felt like I was the only one. Like it was just this isolated experience. And so I'd really hope that for um, for those families that the book becomes kind of a touchdown that they can you know, use when they're dealing with their school system, when they're talking with their neighbors, when they're you know, advising their friends about you know, whether to move in or not and say, hey, here's what the type of things that happens. This is what suburbia is all about. It's not just my experience saying this, like it's actually there. And then the third level would be, again, you know, I'm white and I think a lot about what it means to write about these issues as a white person and for white audiences. And what I'm hoping will happen is, kind of, again, kind of opening up more spaces for conversations like the one you and I are having where we can say, hey, this is the dynamic. This is the pattern. This is, you know, how it both affects us and how we contribute to it in a way that's not about guilt or shame or kind of, you know, trying to, you know, uh, flagellate ourselves for for systemic issues but is about saying hey now that we recognize it what do we do about it yeah and again if you're if you're listening i i think this book is a must read uh especially if you are in a suburban community i think n not reading this book is missing out on a perspective that Maybe you felt and haven't been able to articulate. Maybe you haven't even felt yet. And this will be the first time sort of the blinders are lifted for you. And I think it's an important conversation. And I think a lot of the conversation that, that we are having around race and inequality does become 
very, very tense. And so Ben, I'm curious, how do you see your book fitting into this larger conversation about race and inequality? I'd like to think it's contributing to it. I think there's a movement in the, in the country right now to have to, to both document and talk about and report a more honest, more comprehensive, more uh, holistic and complicated version of our national history and national story. And um, I support that movement wholeheartedly and anything I can do to contribute to that, um, I would like to do and make, you know, kind of do my part with that. Um, and, you know, specifically with um, suburbs and schools, you know, I think part of what I would really love to see happen is for folks to have and be willing to kind of engage and sit with experiences, maybe, you know, versions of the experience that I had when I went back to Princeton Drive and Penn Hills and, and I met Bethany. And so, you know, again, we worked through this process. And one of the things that I found that kind of happened or kind of started to occur in like the dynamic in our relationship is I would keep asking her like, hey, there's all these problems. What, you know, essentially, what are you going to do about it? And she, she would get annoyed and she wouldn't really answer it. And we would kind of go back and forth around that for a long time until this moment came when, you know, it really happened where she really checked me and said, hey, I think I understand what's happening now. And I need you to know that this is a problem because I don't feel like you're f- either fully seeing me as a human being and you're having, you're placing this expectation on me that me and the black families who are in Penn Hills now are going to clean up the mess that you and other white families left behind when you left. And she was 100% accurate. And so I think being able to build relationships that are strong and durable enough to, to, to withstand those kinds of honest conversations and being not defensive um, in order to accept and reckon with those kinds of realities. Um, I'm hoping the book will do that. And I hope, you know, it, it kind of provides a model almost for how we can kind of do that on an individual level. Yeah. And I imagine writing on such a polarizing topic and it it shouldn't be, I don't say polarizing in that it should be. I, I say polarizing in that somehow I feel like it, it ends up being polarizing, even though this is journalism, right? This is what is actually happening. This is the reality. We're, we're, we're like just trying to pull up the blinders on it. Mm-hmm. So uh, what challenges did you face in trying to put all of this information together in, in a way that you felt proud of? Um, I think one of the first things was, again, being intentional about both the, the families that ended up working with and how ended up working with them. So the families represented in the book have a wide variety of racial and ethnic backgrounds, economic backgrounds, um, values, priorities, experiences. I mean, everyone wants what's best for their kids. That's kind of the kind and everyone sees education is kind of central yeah. to that. But beyond that, you know, we were talking uh, politically and ideologically and racially of a very, very diverse group of families. And so what I wanted to do was tell their stories in ways that reflect how they see it, how they make sense of their own experience. And so that's kind of foundational. Like, um, it should, you know, be able to, I want readers to be able to see suburbia through the eyes of these different families and look at it in very different ways. And then what I feel like my job is then is to try and sew those stories together and come up with, um, you know, kind of the through line or the thread that connects them all. Um, and so that through line or that thread, you know, I bring a perspective, uh, I bring my own set of values, I bring my own background and history to that. And, you know, instead of, you know, I think traditionally in journalism, we kind of minimize that and try and, you know, go for quote unquote objectivity. And one of the nice things about writing a book like this is I could say, no, 
I actually do have a perspective and it's informed by my background and experience. And I'm going to show that I'm going to be transparent about that. So you can evaluate my perspective, just like you're evaluating everyone else's perspective. Um, and I think, you know, that the place where I think that dynamic ended up working really well was again with, with, um, Bethany and, and Penn Hills of feeling, you know, comfortable and able and willing to say, I think you're getting this wrong. I don't think you're seeing this and that she was right. And that there is space in the book for her to say that and to write about it herself. Um, and so that's the way I kind of approach it of like, I don't, I want people to know that I have a perspective and set of beliefs and want people to understand my background, particularly as a middle-class white man who grew up in suburbia um, and how that has shaped me and influenced me. But I don't want people to feel limited by the perspective that I bring. So bringing in all of these other perspectives, we can kind of triangulate if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I think it's a beautiful way to, to tackle the topic itself. So as you were, and I, I'm trying to think of how to, to word this, I don't, I don't want to give away too much of the book because I do want people to read the book, but it, is there a story in the book that, that you feel like you could share here um, that was particularly profound for you or per- particularly changing for you? One of the most moving parts of the reporting was spending time at Jefferson Elementary in Compton. And so this is an elementary school that is very old. The facility is very unimpressive. Um, it's in a neighborhood that has been struggling for a long time, kind of right on the edge of Compton's historic barrio neighborhood where um, Mexican families were um, segregated going back to the 10s and 20s. So, um, you know, it's it, it had a long history of struggle. Um, including, you know, just very low test scores, a lot of students who would enter the school speaking no English and come out speaking no English. You know, there was a lot of problems. But in the last 10 years, we've seen as the school has really started to turn around. And it's really started to turn around in a way that's reflective of this larger rebirth in Compton. And so the family that I spent there, uh, uh, spent time following there is named the Hernandezes. And they're undocumented. Um, but their children, um, including Jacob, who was a fourth grader when I met him and followed along, um, were born on uh, in the U.S. and are U.S. citizens. And what I saw in Jefferson was a school that I think any parent anywhere would be proud to send their child to, a school that was really rigorous about academics and basics, making sure that everyone could read, do math, speak English, that tracked data religiously around that and you know acted on it in very powerful ways. But also a school that said, we're going to do that and we're going to recognize the human gifts and talents and potential in these children and nurture them and grow them because we don't want them just being consumers of technology. We want them inventing the next technologies. So watching engineering challenges in a fourth grade classroom and seeing these kids put together, you know, cars that can safely transport an egg down a ramp uh, or doing science fairs where they're, you know, coding and developing apps that allow, um, users to connect to free therapy services when they're feeling anxious or experiencing trauma, wow. like those kinds of um, moments and, uh, and uh, just the inventiveness and the creativity and the opportunity that kids that historically suburbia tried to shut out were now getting an abundance in Compton uh, was very moving for me. I'm jumping around a, a little bit here, but I want to go back to, to Bethany for a second and the, the conversation with her, how did your perspective on listening change as you sort of engaged with her and, and had that dialogue with her about uh, her not feeling seen and maybe completely inaccurately 
interpreted by you. How, how did your perspective on listening shift as, as you were having that conversation? Um, I'd like to think that hopefully I became a better listener um, over the process of it. And I think part of that was in the moment in any given conversation, paying closer attention and listening more carefully and kind of not bringing my own biases and assumptions to the conversation, but kind of more importantly, um, building a relationship over time that allowed both Bethany and myself to feel more comfortable getting more honest with each other as we went. And so when those hard moments came up or when those kind of questions or concerns came up, it was really the relationship that enables the, the listening and the communication. So um, when she said things that were, you know, were hard for me to hear, I also felt like I understood a little bit about where she was coming from and um, who she is as a person, which allowed me to take that and absorb it and make better sense of it um, and hopefully be more responsive to it. Um, so, yeah, I think the, I think the relationship part of all of this is, is huge. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. As you're thinking about uh, this is a, a difficult topic and it can feel somewhat heavy or despairing. How do you balance within the book and within these narratives sort of despair and hope? for these, for these families and for the readers. One of the things that, uh, you know, I think I really had to learn and it was that process of shedding some of my own illusions was that at a really fundamental level, I had to, in order to recognize and feel and integrate that kind of a hopeful perspective, it involved me kind of recognizing the flaws in my own versions of the American dream that were, um, again, by virtue of where I grew up and my background and my race and all of these other factors, you know, were in many ways really predicated on this idea of, you know, opportunity will come if you move out and find it, <laughs> you know, and you just keep moving. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't remember what's behind you. And so, um, over the course of the reporting and, you know, particularly in Penn Hills and, and with, uh, with Bethany, there was a realization that, oh, wait, there are these other versions of the American dream, um, that, are have kind of pulled the country through very difficult times before um, versions of the American dream that are based on repair versions that are based on this kind of long-term forward uh, commitment to future generations. Um, even if we're stuck in a bad system now, we can keep a sense of dream and purpose and hope and a vision for what life can be alive for a generation or two or three later. And so that's not something that was kind of um, inherent to me in my experience growing up. I had to learn. But as I have learned about it, and as I've started to understand that a little better, it's a sense of like, oh, okay, wait, yeah, we're in a mess. And I don't think we can deny that suburbia is, has a lot of problems. And I really do believe after reporting this book that we're at the very beginning of this kind of unraveling, and it's going to define much of American life over the next you know, few decades. But as it happens, I think that finding that hope, finding those alternative paths forwards really means being able to listen to these versions of the American dream that we've t- typically kind of marginalized or put at the kind of edges of the American story. And to say, you know what, actually, those are the center of what America has been about for a very long time. We just have to, you know, particularly as white people choose to like recognize and understand and appreciate them. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really well said answer, Ben. Thank you. What is the main takeaway that you hope readers pull from, from the book? I think first and foremost, again, that, um, Suburbia is not what we tend to think it is. And so getting this kind of more honest, full, accurate, complicated picture of suburbs to start with. And then I think the, um, the second is again, this kind of, um, 
recognition that the reason that we don't have this accurate understanding is because we carry these myths and illusions with us. And so being willing to shed those, like there's a way to do that. It's not easy, but it's valuable. Um, and so um, hopefully the book will encourage and kind of model for readers the sense of like, hey, if this rings true, if what I'm describing here, you know, resonates with your experience, if it's sparking that kind of ambient anxiety that we talked about, and you recognize this in your own community or community nearby you, that it's not something that we just throw our hands up about and say, well, we don't know what's going to happen. Let it unfold, try and run away from it. Instead that we're able to kind of confront it head on and do so honestly. And that there's a path forward for actually doing that. Yeah. It is such a, a big issue and it is something that, as you said, may, we might be right at the the very beginning of that will become much more, prevalent do you as you're picturing the impact that this book has is it is it more at the individual level and you feel if we can change individuals and their perspectives that the result will be a more uh, community driven change or do you think that there also needs to be policy change um, as a direct result like a, how are you envisioning this change starting to to take place as you as you probably gathered by now i'm kind of a both and guy um and so yeah. I, I think it's yeah. both um i think that unless uh critical mass of people are willing to honestly confront history honestly confront the systems of advantage and disadvantage and inclusion and exclusion that have formed our country, um, confront the, you know, the root history of suburbia and be honest about the current challenges that it's facing until we're willing and able to do that, not only as individuals, but as a community of individuals who's willing to work together, I think it's going to be hard to, to make things better. But at the same time, um, there are policy and budget and financial um, implications to this as well. Um, I don't put up forth, like, I don't think there's any, legislation or a big pot of money that is going to automatically fix these things. And I'm sure you sure is at our bank as well. Um, yeah. That said, I think what made suburbia so great and so powerful for family, like families like mine was that there was a massive public investment in kids and saying, these children are going to be the ones who shape our future. We need to invest in them now, giving them safe neighborhoods, giving them quality teachers, giving them uh, affordable higher education, all of the things that that, you know, kind of post-war suburban America was built on, but was really built on only for white families or predominantly for white families to say, hey, what does that kind of social contract look like if we're extending it to everybody? And that's part of where Compton becomes so powerful, where you have a child who um, is the, you know, he's the son of undocumented immigrants. But that's a boy that I want helping decide my future. Like I have a lot of faith that that kid when 20, 30, 40 years from now, that he's going to be in a place based on the education he's receiving in Compton, based on the support he has from his family, based on his own inherent creativity and talent that he will be much better positioned to figure out some of these issues than I am right now. If we make an adequate investment in. Mm. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the, the schools play such a, a critical role in the shaping of the future of these communities. So that needs to be a high priority on our list of like, let's, let's make sure that these schools are adequately providing education for all of the kids that are there equally providing a learning environment that's encouraging, that's building a growth mindset in them. And that helps them see a future where the change is possible. Right. And where help them see a future that they're responsible for changing. 
and that they're going to be in a position to change, that the world isn't something that happens to them, but that they're in a position to help shape that and to look at whatever it is, the dynamics that are shaping the communities and the country that they find in 20 years, that they're in a position um, to look at that and do something about it and imagine ways out of it that we might not be able to imagine right now. Um, you know, I think that the, that's one of the, the beauties of youth is that, uh, you know, the imagination can run pretty free. Um, and that's something yeah. that I think we're going to need a lot more of. I agree. I, th- I think there's something really amazing about the way that the kids are able to look at the world and the, the possibilities that they're able to see and in pairing that with the right environment for them to be able to learn and, and be able to, to shape exactly these things that you're talking about. I, that gives me a little bit of hope, yeah. I think, for, a, for the future. A story, if you don't mind my sharing again, go back to into Jefferson Elementary. And just it, it was one specific assignment, but I think it you know, really speaks to the heart of what we're talking about. So again, it's the fourth grade class, and they're working on um, kind of narrative personal essays. But instead of just writing about, you know, what I did this summer, or, you know, those kinds of things, what the assignment was, was to imagine yourself working at Lucasfilms. And you had to research Lucasfilms. And then the kids had to research Lucasfilms and like what they were producing, what they were, where they were, you know, like all of those things. And then imagine themselves working there and what they would do. And so Jacob, wow. the boy that I was following, wrote this just like amazing and hilarious, like, you know, 500 word thing about, you know, his day and getting up and making breakfast and then getting in his Tesla to drive over to Lucasfilms where he's prototyping new yes. lightsabers and designing new droids and, you know, gets to talk to George Lucas and, you know, uh, how they become friends and what they have for lunch and like all this stuff. And his writing skills are developing in that. But his creativity is developing and probably most importantly, his ability to see and practice seeing himself as a person who gets to shape the country and its institutions and its companies. Like that's a very powerful and beautiful thing. It's powerful and beautiful. Wow. Ben, as you're thinking about your role in sort of continuing this conversation, the book is, is out, you know, this week at the time that, that we're, uh, the, the listeners are listening. How do you see your role in, in this conversation continuing to evolve? Mm-hmm. Um, really hopeful that the book is um, becomes a tool in classrooms, um, high school and university level. Um, I actually had the chance to teach uh, part of the book and kind of an advanced sneak peek of the book to uh, my undergraduate students at Temple University here in Philadelphia, which was a pretty awesome uh, experience. And I, you know, again, like to think that again, it's kind of like helping name things that a lot of, you know, uh, young people have grown up in and experienced and say, Oh wait, this is the world that was shaping me. And now I can kind of see it and understand it and do something with it. So that kind of teaching and educational role is one. And then I think the second would be, you know, really on like the kind of retail hand to hand level of book clubs, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, reading groups inside schools and companies, you know, those kinds of um, small scale community based places where you have it. the book becomes kind of almost like a tool to open a space up and say, hey, here's these, a version of these experiences that many of you are probably familiar with. We're going to take it just one step out of your own personal experience so we can talk with it with a little more distance um, and a little more kind of uh, perspective than when it's our own experience, which is often very hard. And then you know, bring people together in that way. So you know, certainly for anyone who's listening, uh, the, um, you know, the book clubs uh, uh, is something that we're very uh, committed to. Um, and we have discussion guides and all of those things that we'll be more than happy to provide. 
Yeah, that's exciting. I, I can see that. I can see that future coming to life and we'll do everything we can to support you here at, at Tower and, and on the podcast here as well. So uh, as we're sort of drawing this thing to a close, Ben, one of the things that I typically ask, I'm going to sort of rephrase it a little bit. And the question I typically ask is if there's somebody who's sort of on the the upward trajectory of their career, if they've got a dream, they're not sure really where to begin. They know they want to make a big impact, but they don't know how. Um, what advice would you give them? And and I'd love to even maybe take a, a subset of that question and say, if there's somebody who feels like they're stuck as a result of some of this uh, sort of suburban system that, that we've built and, and put people into, um, how would you recommend that they start chasing the dreams that they have? That's a great question. Um, I guess uh, a couple of answers to it. Uh, drawn in some ways from my own experience writing the book. So one would be... Um, when you locate, when any of us locate inside ourselves, that desire to do something that matters, that desire to do something that helps us make sense of something we're struggling with, that desire to help somebody else make sense of something they're struggling with, that can be a hard thing to hold on to once you get into nine to five jobs and mortgages and kids and, you know, all of the travails of life. It's so finding ways to, to hold on to that, I think, is number one. Um, and there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, for me, I think it was, you know, a, a lot of um, reading and research and being able to just you know, find the story like you do, find the stories of people who have done it and say, hey, I can learn something from them and I can learn something from their work. Um, and then I think you kind of can't cheat the grind is another thing, too. Like you have to work. Like you have whether you're field mm-hmm. journalism or banking or teaching or whatever it may be. There's like putting in the hours to it gives you. And giving your whole self to what you're doing gives you the grist that you need to take that spark and build a larger thing out of it. And then the final piece of advice, and this was something, again, I felt very fortunate about was um, at some point, if you hold on to that thing, and for me, holding on to it for a long time as I went through you know, a 10-year career in journalism and did a million other things and waited tables and volunteered and you know, all of the things that I did in my 20s and 30s... Um, Someday someone's going to see that and being able to let yourself be seen and recognize the power of someone else seeing in you what you've been protecting and holding on to like that creates the opportunity where it can start to live outside of you a little bit. But it's important to make sure that you're surrounding yourself with people who are looking for that in others and that when that moment happens and someone sees the gift that you want to give, that you're willing to you're open and willing and kind of caring enough to, to recognize what they're giving to you in that moment. Yeah. Such great advice. A little bit of a a side tangent, but I'm just curious, what did it feel like to, to hold the the copy of the book in your hand for the first time? I actually just got the uh, advanced copies not too long ago and opening that box. And yeah, it's, it's a good feeling. Um, They're heavy. (laughs) Yeah, they are. I've I've got a copy of the book right here. And uh, yeah, it's it's substantial. It's substantial. So that's great. Sending a copy to my mom was, uh, was one of the moments where it really hits like she's, um, you know, you have the people in your life, whether it's family or friends or supporters who, you know, just support you with everything you do and a lot of time. And, and that my mom has certainly been leading that charge for a long time and, you know, getting that text from her, like, I'm so proud of you, you know, like that, that kind of oh, thing gosh, feels, yeah. feels good. Yeah. That's exciting. I'm sure that moment is one that you won't forget. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
So Ben, I want to, I'm going to link to um, the book in the show notes so that people can purchase it. But I also wanted to give you just a chance to share if people want to look you up, if they want to look the, the book up or where can they find you? Yeah. The best place to go is benjaminherald.com. So it's Benjamin. And then my last name is Harold H E R O L D. Um, and you'll just find um, links to pre-order the book. Um, and then information about the book and some of my other projects there. And, you know, I'm on um, Twitter at Benjamin B. Harold and um, Instagram at Benjamin Harold as well. Awesome. So if you're listening in today, thank you so much for your time. I hope this conversation has been as informative for you as it has been for me. I, I do think this, and I've mentioned this a couple of times, I do think this is a profound book that will reshape the way that you think about our suburban communities. And so I hope you will take the time uh, to listen to it, to read it, whatever your avenue is for, for books, get a copy of this book and, uh, and please, uh, please read it. Uh, it goes on sale January 23rd. Is that correct? That's right. January 23rd. So yeah, it'll be out at the time that, that this podcast release. Ben, is there anything else that you want to share with everyone while, while we're together today? I want to say thank you, Brad. I uh, enjoyed the conversation a lot and, uh, you know, listening to some of the other interviews that you've done. It's a great thing you got going here and appreciate Tower Bank for giving you the space to, to tell these stories and, and seek them out. So thanks for what you do. Yeah, it's, it's been a fun project for me. It's, it's my honor to get to have these conversations. I feel like it's a, in a weird way. It feels like, uh, very fortunate. I feel like I'm just doing something that I would otherwise do and it's a part of my job. And so I'm very, very fortunate in that and, and extremely grateful for the opportunity and, and especially grateful for your time today. Yeah. Well, thank you as well. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. Okay. Well, we'll talk soon, Ben. Thanks again. All right, take care. Have a great day. All right. You too. And that's a wrap on today's episode of The Impact Code with our guest, Benjamin Harold. A huge shout out to Tower Community Bank for their unwavering support, making conversations like this possible. Their dedication to community development aligns perfectly with our mission to inspire and empower our listeners. So if you enjoyed today's episode, you can show support by heading over to www.towercommunitybank.com to check us out. And if you found today's discussion on challenging the suburban dream as enlightening as we did, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Your support helps us continue to bring you transformative stories and thought-provoking discussions. Go out and buy the book. Show some support for Benjamin as he is hitting his launch here. A heartfelt thank you to Benjamin for sharing his in-depth perspectives. Your contributions, I know, have sparked meaningful thoughts for all of our listeners. I think you probably have given people a lot of things to think about. Lastly, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you right back here next time to unravel more stories that shape our world today. And until then, stay inspired, stay curious, and keep making an impact. Bye.